Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. We're beginning our celebration of Advent. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do. Would you open them up to the book of Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the hardback black Bibles from under your chair. If you're using one of those, you're going to want to turn to page 573. As I said, we're beginning our celebration of Advent today. And if you didn't know, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is a translation of the Greek word parousia, which simply means coming. That's what Advent is all about. It's about the coming of Jesus. When we talk about celebrating the season of Advent, what we're talking about is celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ to earth in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. But at the same time, Advent isn't just about celebrating something that happened in the past. Advent is also about looking forward to Jesus' second coming when he will return and take us home with him to heaven. That's what we celebrate during the season of Advent. But the truth is, up until recently, the celebration of Advent is something that a lot of Protestant churches, especially uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and just American churches in general, haven't really celebrated. Like, to be perfectly honest, I grew up in a mega church out in Washington State. It was an Assembly of God church. But either way, we never celebrated Advent. but, But the celebration of Advent is not new. It has been around for thousands of years. In fact, we've got records from the early church from 380 AD at the Council of Sargosso where they actually talked about the celebration of Advent. The celebration of Advent is is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the earliest Christians. So for nearly 2,000 years, we've seen Christians celebrating Advent. They've paused to remember the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born in Bethlehem, who came to reconcile us to God. But they've also paused to remember that Jesus is going to come again. And they've looked forward in hope to that day when Jesus will come back and draw us back to himself. So often in this season between Thanksgiving and and New Year's, we get drawn off by all of the dozens of distractions that come our way with the hustle and bustle of Christmas, everything that's coming at us. We, We lose track. We get distracted. We begin to focus on the activities that we have for this season. Food and festivities, gifts, decorations, music, cookies, more food, Memories, holiday traditions we reenact every year. We get distracted, and by themselves, none of those things are bad. By themselves, a lot of them are actually really good. But somehow, along the way, as we're doing all of that, we can take our eyes off of what we're actually trying to celebrate. And Jesus becomes just a footnote in the middle of all the celebration. And that's what Advent is meant to help us with. Advent is meant to help us to be intentional about celebrating the arrival of Jesus and looking forward to his second coming. So as a church, we're going to celebrate Advent over our next five gatherings together. We're going to be intentional about looking to Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to have a unique emphasis for each week. Today, we're going to talk about hope. I don't know if you picked up on that already from the songs we were singing, the the scripture readings from the prophets that we looked at. Today is about hope, but in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about love and joy and peace and Jesus Christ himself. 
But today, as I said, is, is about hope. So let's go straight to Isaiah chapter 9. And, and as we do, we're going to see that the scriptures foretold of a great hope. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 together. Hear the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here's the part we've probably all heard before. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we pause today and we begin this celebration of Advent, and we begin by talking about hope, God, I I ask that you would help us to place our hope squarely where it belongs today. That as we look forward to this next month of celebrating your arrival here on earth, we wouldn't let the, the many things we do throughout the month become our hope the experiences, the gifts, the food, the gatherings, all of these things, let let those not ever become a distraction from where our hope ought to actually lie in your son who's worked on the cross to save us to you. Lord God, we need your help with this today. So we ask that you would speak to each heart here today, that you would encourage us and empower us to walk following you. Do a work in us today, God. We ask this knowing that you are able and, and as we ask each week, I, I ask that if there is somebody here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, somebody here who is trapped in their sin and doesn't have any hope, God, today we ask that you would give them a new and profound hope, that you would bring them to repentance, that you would bring them to come follow you as the Lord of their life, that they would be changed forever by the good news of Jesus. We love you, Lord. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. You know, as, as we celebrate Christmas, I, I've got to be honest, I have a whole lot of memories surrounding this time of year. I have a whole lot of memories about hope surrounding this time of year. Now, I'll caveat that by saying that almost all of those hope-filled memories are memories having to do with things I hoped I was going to get for Christmas. And, and I don't think I'm alone in that. There's been a lot of things that I've really wanted over the years. I I remember one year where I really wanted this radio-controlled airplane. 
Like that's all I wanted for Christmas. I, I don't know how old I was, 12, maybe 13 years old. I had one of those little gas powered string controlled airplanes. You know what I'm talking about? Like the one where you start the engine and then, and then you just spin in a circle and fly that thing around. Like I had one of those and, 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 but I really wanted a radio controlled airplane. And that was everything that my hope was pointed towards that year. Like I was dropping hints left and right. Like I was dropping more hints than Ralphie was for that, that official Red Rider carbine action, 200 shot air model, air rifle that he wanted, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Like the one with the compass and the stock. I was dropping more hints than Ralphie was because I wanted that RC airplane. That's all I hoped for that year. And while I know you guys were, are, are, were always good kids, I know the kids in the room, you guys are good kids who never ever get under the tree and snoop through the packages to see which ones are for you. While I know that's you guys, I was never one of those kids. Like our parents would warn us all the time, stay out from under the tree. But as soon as they were gone, my brothers and I were under that tree, snooping through the packages, trying to figure out which ones were for who. And, and that year in particular, this large cube-shaped box appeared under the tree. And I just knew that was my RC airplane. So as soon as my parents left, my brothers and I, we got under the tray and tree and we looked at this box. It had bows all over it. And I don't, I don't know how y'all wrap presents, but when we wrap presents, you put the bow and then the tag is right next to that bow, right? That, is that how everybody else does it? I, I don't know. Anyway, we looked ever, all over that package and as hard as we tried, we couldn't find a single tag that said who that gift was for. And I just assumed that's, that's my RC airplane. All throughout the month of December, I just kept looking at that box. All of my hope was in that box right there. Christmas morning came and, and we got all the presents out from under the tree and distributed them to all the family members. And, and finally, we were left with that one box where we couldn't find the tag. And, and that's when my dad gave us a hint. He, he told us that all of those bows that were on that package, they spelled out the initials of the person who was going to receive that gift. And so my brothers and I grabbed a piece of paper and a pencil and we started kind of figuring it out. We traced it out and it turns out that that package was for my mom. It was not my RC airplane. It was a lamp. And it wasn't even like a really good, like fragile lamp. It, it was just like, it was a lamp with a table, like a glass table. It was round. It was about like this tall, like a floor. It was a lamp. And, and I'm not going to lie in that moment, all of my hope was crushed and it ruined my day. Not going to lie. I was in a terrible mood the rest of that day. I was grumpy all because of my misplaced hope, misplaced hope leads us into disappointment. It always does. But here's the thing. When we place our hope in the right place, it can do just the opposite. Misplaced hope can leave us depressed, worn out, defeated. But when we place our hope in the right place, we can find joy. We can find rest. We can find strength. And we see that in this text today. But to really see that, it's going to help us to know the context of what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 9. Leading up to this, in the chapters leading up to this, things in Israel and in Judah were not going well. But God had a message of hope for his people. The prophet Isaiah was a man of some influence. Many scholars believe he was the cousin of King Uzziah, the eighth king of Judah, after Israel was divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. And, and in Isaiah chapter 6, we read how the Lord gave Isaiah a message of condemnation to proclaim. You see, God's people had gone astray. They were not following the Lord the way they were supposed to, and the result was that the Lord was going to bring about judgment. 
There were dark times on the horizon for Israel there in chapter six. God's people were about to be utterly wiped out. And as you move into chapter seven, about 16 years passes, and now Uzziah's grandson Ahaz is sitting on the throne of Judah. And Ahaz was, was an utterly wicked king. He, he was a terrible king, but, and under his leadership, God's people had wandered further away from the Lord. They'd completely abandoned his ways. And in chapter 7, the, the judgment that we saw coming in chapter 6 arrives at Judah's doorstep. The king of Syria and, and the king of Israel had teamed up and they'd come down to Judah with a plan to conquer Judah. And so the Lord sends Isaiah over to King Ahaz and essentially he tells Ahaz, hey, don't worry about this. Nothing is going to happen to you. These guys, they're just men. They're not going to conquer you. Soon Israel isn't going to exist. Stand firm in your faith. He gives that message to King Ahaz. And, and then the Lord through Isaiah tells King Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ahaz, who again was an evil, wicked king in a moment of false piety. He says, no, I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. His word tells me, do not put the Lord to the test. But here's the thing, Ahaz wasn't putting the Lord to the test because the Lord had told him to ask for a sign. And so even though he didn't ask for a sign, Isaiah gives him one anyway. In chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, Isaiah says, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Ahaz doesn't want a sign, but the Lord gives him one anyway. And the sign is a son born to a virgin, and his name is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In the midst of this dark period, in the midst of all this despair, the prophet Isaiah provides this like brief light of hope 700 years in advance of when it's going to come. And then everything goes dark. They get this promise of the sign of a son, a son who's born to a virgin, who is literally God with us here on earth. And everything goes dark. The rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 discuss the destruction and devastation that's coming as God tells Ahaz how he will use the Assyrian Empire to utterly destroy their world as they know it. And it's all summed up in the last verse of chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. It should be right there if you're at chapter 9. He says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Years of sin, years of rebellion, years of living for themselves, years of ignoring God. And the result right here is that God leaves them to their own devices. He just steps back and he proceeds to enact judgment by allowing the Assyrians to come in and conquer his chosen people. That's the context that leads us into chapter 9. But before we even look at chapter 9, I want us to zoom out and recognize that this is talking to us today as well. You see, we need to recognize that we too have a sin problem in our own lives. And that sin leads us into darkness. That sin leaves us with a problem that we cannot fix on our own. If we hope to try and fix it for ourselves, we will fail. 
Because try as we may, we cannot fix our sin problem. Try as we may, we cannot be good enough on our own. And when we, when, when we fail, when we try, but we fail to succeed in gaining this righteousness for ourselves, we're left depressed and defeated. And as we begin to read chapter 9 today, I want you to see that this is a chapter that's going to show us some hope. And as we begin in verses 1 through 3, I want you to see that our hope actually brings us joy. Take a look at this, beginning at verse 1. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This promise here, as we begin in the midst of this darkness and despair, is that things are going to be radically changed. Sometimes in the depth of our sin. When we really feel the weight of our sin in our lives, we can look up and everything around us that we see, everything we see just confirms the despair we're feeling in that moment. And that's what was happening for God's people. Naphtali was the northernmost territory in the kingdom of Israel. It was located along the northwest uh, banks of the Sea of Galilee, and, and Zebulun was located in South Galilee. And, and at this point in history, as, as Isaiah is making this prophecy, the Assyrian Empire had already come in and conquered both of those territories. They'd already set them up as vassal states. They're provinces of Assyria. And as Judah stands and they look to their northern border, they see this wave of Assyrians coming toward them. They look out and all they see is hopelessness. All they see is despair. Everything they see is confirming their deepest fears. So the people at this point really can look out and see nothing but despair. These northern tribes have already fallen but the prophet is telling Judah, he's, he's telling them in this moment, he's saying, hey, these tribes that represent everything that's gone wrong, that represent everything that, that means your worst nightmares coming to fulfillment in your life, out of those tribes right there, hope is about to shine forth. He's saying this despair and gloom that you're surrounded by is about to become your source of joy. Look at verses two and three. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In the heart of this despair, a great light is dawning for God's people. And that light brings joy. God's promising through his prophet that things are about to be different. And there's something in this darkness and light metaphor that we have got to pick up on if, if we really want to understand the good news that we see right here. You see, when light comes in, the darkness doesn't get any darker. It simply runs away. I think the darkest place I've ever been in my life has got to be on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier on a moonless night when all the lights are off in the middle of the ocean. 
just completely black. You can't see a thing. You can't see six inches in front of your face. And when it's like that, if, if you don't have at least some sort of flashlight, like it's a scary place. There's all kinds of hazards, things you can walk in, things you can trip over. And so in order to get around, you'll just kind of shuffle your feet and kind of feel like I've walked around in my flight gear like that on the flight deck at night. It is terrifying. But here's the thing about that darkness. If you've got a flashlight, even if it's a very, very dim flashlight, like when I say dim, I think of like we had these finger lights we would fly with and they, they just strap around your finger and it was a little tiny LED, like it took a couple of like hearing aid batteries, like little tiny flashlight. If you took even the dimmest of flashlights and turned it on, all of a sudden, everything that made that flight deck scary was gone. Because even as dim as that little light was, the darkness didn't get any darker. When you turn that light on, the darkness simply runs away. And now you can see where you're going. Now you can see what's going on. And, and that's what was going on here. When you introduce light into the darkness, the darkness doesn't get any darker. It just goes away. And once you have light, everything that's scary is gone. And that's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying this great light has come and that light is this promised savior and he brings us joy. We don't have to be afraid anymore. That's what verse three is talking about. You see this coming savior, our, our savior, Jesus, he brings a profound joy because Jesus is the light that expels the darkness of our sin. In John chapter eight, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is this light, and that light brings us joy. So our hope, Jesus, he brings us joy. So as we consider this, this Advent season, let me encourage you, rejoice in your hope. Like have joy, celebrate your hope. But don't just rejoice in your hope. Because our hope doesn't just bring us joy, it also brings us victory. Look at verses 4 and 5. Isaiah says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Our hope brings victory. Right there in verse four, we see this threefold victory over oppression. The yoke is broken. The staff is broken. The rod is broken. Now, these three things could be pointing to the weapons that were physically used to actually come in and conquer Judah. Or it could be a metaphor that's talking about the oppression that comes when you're paying taxes to a foreign ruler, when that foreign ruler comes in and drives you out of your land or, or tells you you have to follow their leadership. But either way you see it, what you see here is that those weapons, whether they're a metaphor or real, they're being destroyed in a miraculous way, just like in the days of Midian. That reference, by the way, is a reference to Judges 6 and 7. It's going back to the story of Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? God calls 
out to Gideon and, and he puts out that fleece to make sure it's actually God talking to him. I don't recommend that, but that's what he did, right? So, so that's the story of Gideon. The Midianite army had been oppressing Israel. And in chapter six of, of Judges, we see God call in Gideon to serve him and lead his people. And then in Judges chapter seven, we see God command Gideon to take his army of 32,000 men. That's an army and winnow them down to just 300. He then gives commands to Gideon about how he's going to go and fight the Midianite army. And they don't fight the way they expect. They grab torches, they grab pots, they put the torches in the pots, they surround the army, they break the pots, they shout, there's firelight, and God goes to work. And he brings about this miraculous victory where God causes the Midianites to fight themselves to death. And Israel is victorious without even raising a sword. That's the days of Midian that they're talking about right here. Complete, unmitigated victory. The kind of victory that you cannot have on your own. The kind of victory that is dependent completely on God. That's what verse 5 is describing. It's the kind of victory where even your enemy's boots and uniforms are going to be burned up because your enemy has been completely destroyed. The oppression of sin is gone. That's what this promised Messiah is going to bring. A once for all victory. And that's what Jesus brought to us. Peace. Complete victory over sin. Listen, apart from Jesus, if your hope is in you, all you can do is try your best. You can strive to be a good person. You can strive to do good deeds. You can work really hard. You can try to earn righteousness for yourself. And for a time, you might even have some success. You might make some progress, but but the problem we have is that our very best is never going to be good enough to cover up our sin. We can't ever actually do enough to take away our sin all by ourselves. We can't actually be good enough on our own. And so if we place all of our hope in our own abilities to save ourselves, we can work ourselves to death trying to be good enough. And we never succeed. And we end up depressed and defeated and exhausted. That's what happens when you try to save yourself, when you try to be your own savior. But if our hope is in Jesus... Our hope brings victory because Jesus has done it for us. You see, we're being shown right here that our hope brings victory. So rest in that victory. Just rest in the hope that you have in your victory. Stop fighting for it on your own and rest. Stop trying to do it on your own because the victory is won. That's what our hope brings. And we need to be reminded of this as we start this Advent season. But I also want you to see as we finish up this text, I want you to see that our hope isn't in an idea. Our hope isn't in something that some random person is going to do. Our hope is going to be in a specific person. 
that's described in the rest of this text. Look at verse 6. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This right here is the pinnacle of our hope at Advent. Because this is describing our hope. It's describing a very specific person who is behind and this is the source of our hope. Look closely at this. You see, this points us to a royal person, but he's never called a king. Now, maybe that's because in the day that Isaiah made this prophecy, all of the kings that these people had known before and and after, they they were all terribly corrupt. Maybe it's because this promised Messiah was going to be the kind of king that that the kings of that day were only in name and, and title. We don't know. But what we do know is that this is a regal person. But this verse also tells us that this person will be born. And we don't want to pass this one over. It's really easy. Well, of course, he's going to be born. But, but later on, we're going to read that this person is both human and divine. And, and what this is reminding us is, is that this person that's coming is going to enter into the world with the most human of all ways of entering. He's going to be born. So what we can see is that this expected perfect king The king, unlike any of the kings these people had ever seen before, he will be a human, but he'll also be divine. And and the names, the titles that are given to this person are going to underscore his deity and what his reign will look like. He's the wonderful counselor. He'll have an unfailing depth of wisdom, the kind of wisdom that understands that in weakness, there's strength. The kind of, of, of wisdom that understands that in surrender, there's victory the kind of wisdom that understands that in death there is life. And this person will be called mighty God. Now, this is the one that that there's just no getting around because some people have tried to say, well, the Messiah isn't actually God, but, but right here it says he will be mighty God, El Gibor in Hebrew. It's literally mighty God. It's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God the Father. And here it's being pointed to the, the Messiah that's coming. He's God. But this person will also be called Everlasting Father. Now, in that day and in many times since, kings have referred to themselves as the father of their people. But this one is different because here he's saying he's an everlasting father. This is a father who's going to live on forever and ever. He's eternal. And this person will be called the Prince of Peace. He's the king who brings about an end to despair an end to war. He brings a kingdom of peace that's described later on in verse 7. There Isaiah says that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He's going to have this kingdom that is ever expanding and the peace that this kingdom brings is ever expanding, reaching more and more people. And this is a kingdom where peace continues to go on. And what we need to recognize, what we need to realize as we're reading this description is that the kind of kingdom of peace that's being described right here, this is the only, only can happen when we've been reconciled to our creator. The kind of peace that's described here only comes about when mankind has been forgiven of their sin. This is the kind of peace that exists when our sin has been atoned for. 
where enmity has been removed, where we find peace with God himself. And that's what this Messiah is bringing because he's the prince of peace. But we see even more about his coming kingdom as we continue on in verse 7. It says, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This king is going to reign on David's throne. Which means that this promised Messiah, this this regal person, this holy person, this this God-man who's going to come and save Israel, who is the source of our hope, he is the fulfillment of this prophecy, but also all the other prophecies. The promises from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord said that no one with your throne will never have someone not to sit on it. You're going to have somebody sitting on your throne forever. The promise that Hal and Kay read earlier in the service from Jeremiah 33. He's the fulfillment of all of that. But even more than that, what I want you to see is this promise we see in the last sentence of verse 7. Because you can't miss this. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Everything that's described here, all of these promises of hope that we see here at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9, all of them are not going to happen because some man steps up and makes it happen. All of these things are going to happen because God makes it happen. And that's something on which we can place our hope. If we place our hope in earthly kings, presidents, governors, earthly leaders, I promise you at some point they are going to disappoint us. At some point they are going to let us down. But if we place our hope in the promise of God, this promise right here, now things are different. Because these 10 words make it completely clear that our hope will be accomplished by God himself. And that means that this last sentence there in verse 7 is a landmark we can look to to keep our eyes fixed on our hope. This time of year, there's so many things that can draw our attention away. We need landmarks to keep our eyes fixed. You know what I'm talking about when I say landmark, right? Like, like I don't like shopping. I, I, I'm not a fan. Like Black Friday, no, I don't even leave the house. Like I didn't even go to tractor supply for feed, let, let the animals eat the grass or something for, for a day. They'll be okay. I hate going shopping out in town, especially on days like Black Friday. I do most of my shopping online. But when I do go shopping, my favorite place to go shopping is Costco. If you have never been to Costco, it's like Sam's Club, only a million times better. The people are friendlier, the products are better. Everything about it, the price is a little bit higher, so I guess that's not better, but everything else. Costco is better, and the problem I have is that Costco, the nearest one, is over in Mobile. And because it's over in Mobile, I don't get to go over there very often. But here's the thing, even though I don't go over there very often, a couple times, what, three, four times a year maybe? Even though I don't go there very often, I don't have to get my phone out and enter the GPS in order to know how to get there, how to get back. And the reason for that is there's landmarks that guide me along the way. Landmarks that I see that will tell me, hey, this is the place to turn. This is where you want to look to get, get home or get to the store. And, and I think the best landmark, the absolute best landmark to kind of help you see this would be the landmark that I use as I'm coming home. 
You see, as I'm coming home from Costco, heading east on Interstate 10 um, towards Pensacola, I, I don't look for the exit number for the Gulf Beach Expressway. I, I don't look for a highway number. I, I don't, honestly, I have no idea what number it is. Instead, I look for a landmark that I'm actually going to see. I look for Bucky's. You know why I do that? Because every single mile, there is a green sign with white letters that says exit for someplace one mile, right? There's a million different highway signs, but in South Alabama, there is only one Bucky's. And so I know that if I see that Bucky's, I have to exit the freeway and I'm on my way home. That's what I'm talking about when I say a landmark. And what I'm telling you is these 10 words here at the end of verse 7, they are the landmark that helps us to keep our eyes fixed on our hope. Because our hope isn't in man, our hope is in God. Because if God has promised to make this happen, then we know that it's a sure thing. If God has promised to make this happen, we know it will happen. Men may fail you. God won't. You see, the source of our hope is a promise that God made over and over and over again for a millennia. The promise we're looking at here was made 2,700 years ago. But here's the thing. It might be the best thing about this promise of hope is that this promise that was made 2,700 years ago, it was kept 700 years after that in a little town called Bethlehem where this baby was born. Have you ever thought about like the, the miraculous things that had to happen for that to occur? Like God placed it in the mind of Caesar, the ruler of the known world, to take a census all to move this family from Galilee up to Bethlehem so that the Savior who was promised to come from Bethlehem, to be born in Bethlehem, would, would be born in Bethlehem. And then he moved that family to Egypt. And, and after it was safe, he called them out of Egypt so that out of Egypt, I will call my son. And that's where Jesus came out of. And then he grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee, all so that this promise could be kept. God made all of this happen. The promise we're looking at here, it was made 2,700 years ago, but, but it was kept. And that's where we can find some actual hope. You see, Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise. Because Jesus is the king that every king of Israel and every king of Judah could never even hope to be. He was a king who came in the line of David to sit on David's throne. He was God in the flesh who stepped down from heaven. He put on flesh and he lived among us so that he was Emmanuel. Jesus is our wonderful counselor who used all the wisdom of God to lead us back to himself. Jesus is our mighty God who stepped down from heaven, who put on flesh, who lived a perfect life, but died a sinner's death so that he could reconcile us to himself. Jesus is our everlasting father. He lives eternally, sitting at God's right hand, eternally interceding for us on our behalf. 
Jesus is our Prince of Peace who brought sinners to peace by purchasing it with his blood at the cross on Calvary. And he reigns, like I said, on David's throne forever and ever. His sacrifice brought justice and peace, and it's God's own zeal that made this happen. God sent his son to pay the price for our sin. Jesus God in the flesh laid his own life down to pay the price for our sin. Jesus said he raised himself back up. God's own zeal made this happen. That is our hope in the season of Advent. Our hope is Christ. It's not the presence. It's not the parties. It's not the food. I love the, I'm I'm telling you, I love the food. I got to get new pants. I love the food. But that is not the source of our hope. Our hope is Christ. Jesus is our promised hope. So keep your eyes fixed on him this year. That's what we're seeing right here. So often at Christmas, we want to do what I did as a kid. We, we want to place our hope in the wrong place. Maybe we place it in the gifts we want to receive. Maybe it's in those celebrations. It's in those, those parties. It's in those gatherings. It's in the good food. But when we do that, every year, like, like you can set your watch by it. It's either December 26th or January 2nd, depending on when you do your decorations. As you pull down the decorations, you put everything away. Every year when your hope is in all that stuff, this sense of like disappointment sets in. It's just like this letdown. Well, Christmas is over. I mean, you see it on social media. Only 364 days till Christmas. Dude, it was yesterday. But when our hope is in the wrong place, we end up with this massive letdown. And what I'm here to tell you today is that it doesn't have to be that way. Because this Christmas season, this this season we call Advent, It's not about the gifts we give. It's not about the food we eat. It's not about the celebrations we're going to gather at. It's not about the traditions that we reenact. The season of Advent, all of Christmas, it's about Christ. It's about the hope that we have in Christ. That he came and lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death so that if we will repent of our sin and place our faith and trust in him, he will give us his righteousness and we'll be reconciled to God. That is why we celebrate Christmas. So as we begin this celebration today, let me encourage you to remember that our hope brings us joy. So rejoice in that hope. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus came, that Jesus has forgiven your sins, 
that you've been reconciled to God. And remember that our hope brings us victory so we can rest in our hope. Stop fighting to do it yourself. You can't. Stop trying to be good enough on your own. You can't. You know how I know that? Because I've tried. Fell flat on my face. But our hope is that Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile us to God. That he already has defeated sin and death. That we already have the victory that we need so we can rest. Just sit back and breathe it in. You don't have to save yourself from your sin. That's what our hope is about. And we need to remember that. But this Christmas season, we also need to remember that our hope is Christ. So we need to keep our eyes fixed on our hope. Squarely looking at Jesus. Don't allow all of the other things that are around us. All of the fun stuff we're going to do, and we're going to do some fun stuff. To take our eyes off of Jesus because he is our hope. It's not the RC model plane. It's Christ. You know, I know, it's, I know the saying is it's kind of cliche, it's a little bit cheesy, but it really is true. Jesus is the reason for the season. He is the reason we celebrate Advent. He is the reason we celebrate Christmas. So let's keep our eyes fixed on him, fixed on the hope we have in him, because he is our hope. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.